0: Thank you, Mary. Good morning, Woodland Hills. Morning. You look spectacular. Marvelous. Marvelous. We are in this series here uh, that we're calling Tapestry because we're looking at the tapestry of uh, the identity of Woodland Hills Church. It's kind of a strange church. It doesn't neatly fit into any particular category. So we're looking at the various aspects of the church tradition that have Uh, Influenced the theology and the practice of Woodland Hills Church. So we started by uh, looking at our relationship to the Church Universal throughout history, and then we looked at our inheritance from the Protestant uh, movement, and then we looked at what we've inherited from the Wesleyan tradition. So this morning we're going to talk about what we've inherited from the charismatic tradition. We're calling this the charismatic thread because Woodland Hills Church is in fact a charismatic church. We believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. So we're going to be talking about the Holy Ghost today. You want some Holy Ghost talk? You ready for some Holy Ghost talk? Can you handle some Holy Ghost talk? Okay. Okay. So let's start by asking the Holy Ghost to descend upon us in this message. Abba Father, send your spirit. Abba Father, send your spirit here on us as we gather together. Uh, Abba Father, send your spirit on all who are, are listening through podcasts, our wonderful Podrishner congregation, and send your spirit on all who are watching this through television God, we just pray that your power would descend on us, your love would descend on us, your truth would descend on us, that you use this message, Lord, to, uh, uh, God, teach us to be a people who walk not just by our own resources, but who are under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And we know what it is to be filled with the Spirit, and we know what it is to be used with the gifts of the Spirit. Uh, God, we want to move in this direction, become more of a a Spirit-empowered people who carry all your will on earth as it is in heaven. So come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit, we need you. In Jesus name, we pray and all of God's people said. Amen. 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 Uh, I will try to reserve 5 or 10 minutes at the end of the message for some questions. So as I'm going through this message and questions arise in your lovely brains, uh, text them in to this number 651-321-3030 that's 651-321-3030. And uh, We'll uh, get to a couple of those at the end of the message. It's my favorite part because I haven't prepared for it, so it keeps me on my toes, and it's you know it's just fun. So we'll see what happens there. Okay, uh, to talk about the charismatic thread, we have to start at the day of Pentecost because the day of Pentecost, as many of you know, uh, was the time when the Spirit was first poured out. Jesus was risen from the dead. Uh, He'd been around hanging out with his disciples for forty days. And then he tells them just before he ascends into heaven, wait in Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. He told them to go out and, and make disciples of all nations, but he's telling them here, don't do that until you first receive the power to do that. And the power he's talking about is the power of the Holy Spirit. And so uh, a little while later, they're in the upper room and they're praying and the Spirit of God on the day of Pentecost descends on them and there's a supernatural signs and wonders uh, tongues of fire on their heads and a rushing mighty wind and they speak in tongues and they prophesy and that was the birthday of the church it was at that moment that the church was was endowed with the same power that jesus had during his earthly ministry and he had said to his disciples that you're going to do the same works i'm doing and so here the kingdom movement uh receives a supernatural dimension the power of the holy spirit and we know from the New Testament and the early church records that the, church, the early church movement, the early kingdom movement, was it always had this, this spiritual power dimension to it, a supernatural dimension to it. And so we see throughout the, the first and second centuries, uh, the church, they, they would pray for people and people would be healed. Uh, there's, there's miracles that were done. Uh, people had visions and prophecies and spoken tongues and interpretation of tongues. And these are all gifts of the spirit that I'll be talking about a little bit later on. There's that supernatural dimension to it. But in the late 2nd, early 3rd century, we find that these gifts begin to uh, become less. They they begin to disappear. And by the time you get to the 5th and 6th century, they're completely gone. Now you find throughout church history, there are moments where you have these kind of outbreakings of the Spirit, these revivals where you once again hear about people speaking in tongues and and healings happening and visions and prophecies and whatnot. Uh, But they're always rather short-lived. Little, little little burps of the Spirit, so to speak, popping through uh, in church history, but they're short-lived. It wasn't until the beginning of the 20th century, actually uh, New Year's Eve on 1901 in Topeka, Kansas, where there's an outpouring of the Spirit that now was not just a momentary revival. It's still with us to this day. And this was the birth of what's called the Pentecostal movement. It's called Pentecostal because it's patterned on the day of Pentecost. And it was a recovery of the supernatural dimension of the kingdom. God always intended it, the kingdom movement to have a supernatural empowerment. And now it was being recovered um, in a way that wasn't just sort of temporary. The Pentecostal movement went on for about 60 years as an independent movement, but then, in the early 1960s, we see that it begins to make inroad into mainline churches. So you've got Baptists and and Lutherans and, and Presbyterians and others who begin to see that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. And they begin to be filled with the Spirit, and they begin to prophesy, and to speak in tongues, and to pray for people, and to seeing healings happen, and things of that sort. And then in the 70s and 80s, it finally starts to make its inroad into evangelical churches, and this is all called the charismatic Movement or the charismatic Renewal. Uh, the word charismatic comes from the word that's used for gifts that we'll talk about a little bit later on. It's the word charisma. And so the charismatic Movement uh, then uh, begins to transform uh, mainline denominations and evangelical denominations. And that Woodland Hills Church is part of that movement because we believe that the gifts of the Spirit are for today. Now, the, the Pentecostal Movement that began in, in 1901 that might have been just one of the many little short-lived revivals, were it not for a revival, an incredible revival, a remarkable revival that happened uh, on Azusa Street in Los Angeles in 1906. It's called the Azusa Street Revival. And it was headed up by a man named William Seymour. I want to talk just a little bit about that revival and about this man. William Seymour was uh, born in, uh, in, in Louisiana, May 2nd, 1870. Here he is. It was, uh, he was a soft spoken man, uh, unusual in some respects, but when he got into the pulpit, they said the power of God came down and he could preach. Um, he was the son of, of two former slaves. If you're an African American, Louisiana, 1870, is not where you want to be. It was bad. It was bad. Uh, I mean, they, they, these freed slaves, they lived in abject poverty. His total worth, they estimated the family's total worth was 55 cents in terms of their net possessions. Um, a lot of people don't realize it, but the situation for African Americans uh, after the Civil War uh, in the South was in some respects worse than slavery. The backlash on the part of, of white Southern folks who had lost, they're bitter for losing the war and angry for losing slaves. And the backlash against African Americans was just horrendous. Um, this is the period that's sometimes known as Reconstructionism, where the entire structure, the political structure, was was redone to keep the African Americans from moving into having any kind of influence, having any kind of political power, keeping them on the edges, on the margins of society. This is the era where we see the Ku Klux Klan coming into power. A number, a number of other racist groups. And so this is a time when, when it wasn't uncommon for African-Americans to just be beaten up. They did, if they didn't keep their place, they were beaten up and sometimes lynched or burned alive. Incredibly racist time. This is the era of the, where the Jim Crow laws were put in place. Uh, to keep the races separated and to keep the African-Americans on the fringe of society. It was an intensely racist time. And, and William Seymour was born right in the heart of that. Right in the heart of that, 1870. And that's significant for reasons that we'll see here in a moment. So when, when he's a teenager, he, he uh, uh, decides to try to get out of that. He, he moves up north. Travels around here and there. Takes on odd jobs as a hotel waiter or whatever. In, in, his, in his 20s, he finds Christ in a Holiness Methodist church. And then his, his 30s, Uh, He has this event where he uh, uh, contracts smallpox, which was often deadly back in those days. And he had a severe case of it, so much so that it left his face very scarred up. So he wore a a beard all of his life. Uh, He he got one eye infected that had to be taken out. So they called him the one-eyed preacher. And uh, it was in that period where he was near death that he felt the call of God to be a minister. And he made a covenant with God that if he survived this, this, this illness, that he would commit his life to preaching the gospel. He survived, and so he committed his life to preaching the gospel. He goes down to Texas to study at a Bible school down there. It was a Bible school that was headed up by uh, uh, Charles Parham, who was uh, one of the founders of the Pentecostal movement. And um, this is the Jim Crow South. He's going back to the, the racist area that he had left, But he goes back there to learn the Word of God. But because it's the Jim Crow South, he's not allowed to be in the classroom with the whites. So he has to sit out in the hallway to hear the lectures. But he presses on, despite that, because he wants to learn the Word of God. And then a year later, in January 1906, uh, he gets invited to preach at a church in Los Angeles, He was gaining a reputation for being quite a good preacher. He had learned about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, which these early Pentecostals identified with speaking in tongues. I'll say more about that later on. And he didn't yet have that experience, but he believed in it. So he goes to this church to preach about the baptism of the Holy Spirit, though he didn't didn't yet have that experience. They hear one message, and it causes an uproar. So they disinvite him. He was supposed to stay there for a while, but they, he traveled all that way. But they said, nope, we don't want to hear this message anymore. So they bar him from going to the church. He doesn't feel like he's supposed to go back to Texas, however. So uh, someone invites him. He likes his message, invites him to his house. And they begin to have prayer meetings and Bible studies. And, uh, and he begins to preach, and the thing begins to grow. they got to move into a, a, a bigger house. This is the, the, the Bonnie Bay uh, house uh, where this revival first bro- broke out. He's teaching, they're fasting a lot, they're praying you know, day and night, uh, and the crowds begin to grow. And then on April 9th, 1906, and in the middle of a 10-day fast, uh, the Spirit of God fell on these folks. And for three straight days, days and nights, they did nothing but pray and sing. And and the power of God fell on them. And they, uh, one by one, were speaking in tongues. And they were given prophecies and visions. And some folks were experiencing healings. And some folks were experiencing other supernatural things. Like this one woman, Julia Moore, uh, all of a sudden got the ability to play the piano. Hadn't uh, hadn't, uh, taken a lesson a day in her life. And now she can play any song that they request. And she was to later on become uh, William Seymour's wife. And so she becomes the worship leader of this thing. And it grows, and it grows, and the power of God is there, and they're seeing miracles all the time. Eventually, they got to find a bigger venue. So they, they find this old building that was a church, but it was abandoned, and now it was just used as a stable for horses. But for $8 a month, they could rent that. So they move their revival down there. And that's when heaven really broke loose. This is 312 Azusa Street, uh, where it's called the birthplace of Pentecostalism, because this is where the thing just completely blew up. I mean, in a good way. God came down, and for three years straight, they daily had miracles happening, and signs and wonders, and people's lives being radically transformed. They had three services a day, seven days a week. Uh, and the services ran into one another and often went all through the night. And it was just non-stop, spiritually intense, probably the greatest revival since the birth of the church. It was absolutely outstanding. It was an explosion of spirit power. People would come from all over the world. Sometimes they would get a thousand, uh, over a thousand people in this little building. People would be out in the street listening to the message. It was just people would come from from Europe everywhere and come together to uh, experience this and to hear this teaching. And then they take it back to their locales and start the revival there. And that's how Pentecostalism spread all over the world. Why it wasn't just a short-lived little thing. It it, it now has transformed the face of Christianity. One out of every four Christians on the planet today are are Pentecostals. It's the fastest growing segment uh, of the church. Uh, it's, just, it's just powerful. It's one of the reasons why uh, Church History Magazine voted William Seymour one of the top ten most influential Christians in the 20th century. And, uh, and it's just, uh, there's been excesses and, and other things like that, but uh, there's been a recovery of the supernatural dimension of the Holy Spirit in the kingdom, and it's here to stay, praise God. And Woodland Will- Hill's church is part of that movement. Amen. Now, I'm going to talk about ways that the, the teachings of the charismatic movement Uh, have influenced Woodland Hills Church, but there's two areas, before I do that, there's two aspects of this revival and two aspects of Seymour's teaching that I want to touch on, because they they relate to core convictions of Woodland Hills Church. First, this Azusa Street Revival was significant because it was interracial. This is a, a, a photograph of the leadership team of the Azusa Street Revival. And you can see it was, it was very diverse. You have blacks and whites and, and uh, Latinos and Asians coming together. And they're worshiping God together, praising God together. And it was just beautiful. And then they take it back to their own countries and, and, and whatnot. It was powerful. Now, this is 1906. This doesn't happen. 1906 was racism in America was at its peak. 1906, the KKK had more power than they ever had. It, 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 they were... They had friends in high places, and I mean all the way up to the top in high places. It was, they were powerful. Uh, more, more African-American men were lynched in 1906 than in any other year in American history. It was, uh, this was an intensely racist time, and yet in the middle of this, these folks are coming together uh, and, and, and worshiping together, and the walls are coming down. It was a scandal. It was absolutely scandalous. Most other churches condemned the movement, not just because of some of the excesses of the the Pentecostal revival, but because it was interracial. Uh, uh, William Seymour's former teacher uh, condemned the movement because it was interracial. The Los Angeles Times condemned the movement because it was was interracial. It was considered to be indecent for for people of different races to come and worship God together. William Seymour thought, despite the racism that he'd gone through, being raised in the racist South, in Louisiana. And despite the racism that he experienced in the Bible school that he went to, and despite now the rejection of all of his Christian brothers and sisters, he believed that uh, the the blood of Jesus Christ that washes away our sin also washes away our divisions because our divisions are sinful. Amen? Amen. And he just saw, he just saw that that when when the Spirit of God falls on people, uh, all of the, the things that society uses to divide people that they invest with such significance uh, fall apart. They just disappear. Where the Spirit of God falls on people. Babel starts to be reversed and people start coming together. You begin to see that where the Spirit of God falls, God begins to recover his ideal for having one human race. And, and, and we, we just say amen to all of that. That movement, that, that Spirit of God movement, it absolutely was right. We believe that, that at the center of our kingdom call, this isn't a peripheral thing or a marginal thing or a secondary thing. This is part of the atonement. This is one of the reasons why Jesus died. That, that He died to make one new humanity, it says in Ephesians 2. A new humanity where the walls of division are torn down. A new humanity that re- reflects the beauty of God, the multifaceted beauty of God, in a way that homogeny never can. There's a kingdom value in diversity for diversity's sake. Diversity reflects the glory of God better than homogeny. And so we, as people of God, followers of Jesus Christ, have to always be in our own lives and as a body of believers, always moving to build relationships with folks of other ethnicities, other cultures. Because in the kingdom of God, the different cultures and the different colors and the different styles, those shouldn't just be problems we've got to get around. Those should be things that we celebrate. Praise God. Our kingdom, The kingdom movement. Amen. Yeah. The kingdom movement, the kingdom, the kingdom is meant to be a sneak preview of of this coming kingdom when the kingdom comes in fullness. And, and we know that when the kingdom comes in fullness, it says in Revelation 7, people from every tribe and every tongue and every culture and every ethnicity will be brought together and worship God around the throne, each reflecting the glory of God in their own unique, beautiful, distinct ways. And our job is to manifest that now as much as possible. Seymour got that, and to that we say amen. To that we say amen. That's the way it's supposed to be. So a core conviction of ours has to do with the coming together, reversing Babel, the coming together of the different people groups uh, to worship God together and to uh, learn to embrace one another and be expanded and to be stretched and to grow and to learn. Another thing that was really distinctive about this Azusa Street revival. And by the way, it's, here's the thing. Like, this revival had this, uh, but, but the later Pentecostals didn't. Uh, 10, 15 years later, uh, racism came, put its ugly head in there, and Pentecostals divided. But the earliest ones in Azusa Street, they had it. They, they got it right. They also had as many women preaching as they had men. They had as many women in leadership as they had men. We saw that in the photograph. Uh, it was incredible in that, that uh, women were empowered. Now, they, Seymour saw, and this surprised everybody, uh, including him, but they just saw that when the Spirit of God comes down and people are filled with the Spirit, gender no longer is an issue. I mean, the culture may tell you it's an issue, and there, as missionaries, there's times in different cultures where we've got to work around things. But, but when, God's ideal, he saw God's ideal uh, in the kingdom, uh, is that the ministry you aspire to and the ministry you move into, it, it, your qualification has to do with God's calling on you and God's gifting in you, and gender has got nothing to do with it. Because in Christ, Paul says there's neither male nor female. And so Seymour just said, let the spirit flow. And if the spirit of God calls you women into a ministry, you go into ministry. And if the spirit of God calls you to be a pastor, then you've got to be a pastor. if the spirit of God calls you to preach, then you've got to preach. And, 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 and human beings should not get in the way of that. And we want to say amen to that. A core conviction of ours, amen. A core conviction of ours is, is that, 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 that that cultural limitation has got to go. The limb, the, the, and, and all the hierarchies in society about putting men over women or one race over another race, all that is blown sky high by the blood of Jesus Christ and we who live under the blood of Jesus Christ and the power of the Spirit. Praise God. I've got to manifest the beauty of that. Amen. So women, I'm telling you, I want to stand right side by side with Seymour, and I want to say, you in the congregation or women listening through podcasts, if the Spirit of God puts on your heart a desire to preach, then you start moving towards preaching. Find a way to do that. If the Spirit of God puts on you a desire to lead, then then you move into leadership. Find a way to do that. If the Spirit of God puts on you a, 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 a call to be a pastor, then pursue pastoring. Whatever is on your heart to do, then do it with passion. Pursue it. Because the Spirit of God has set us free. Whether there's the Spirit, there's freedom, amen? amen. Moving it, living it. And not just for your sake, not just for your sake, but for the church's sake, for the kingdom of God's sake, for Christ's sake, for Christ's sake, women, move in and be empowered, move into your ministry. Amen. It's such a tragedy. The church, half of our resources and uh, leadership and preaching are, are denied in some places. It's just a tragedy. In the sense that it's free, is free indeed. Be free. Be free. All right. All right. Okay, now for our message. <laughs> that was all prelude. Okay, two things. Two, 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 <laughs> two teachings uh, that, that uh, in the charismatic movement, Pentecostal movement, that, that, that Woodland Hills uh, embraces and accepts. The first one is that we believe the gifts of the Spirit are for today. The gifts of the Spirit, the charismatic gifts are for today. Here's what it says in, in 1 Corinthians 12. There are different kinds of gifts, and the word there is charisma, and that's where you get the word charismatic from, the Greek word charisma. There are different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them. And it is interesting that you have several lists of gifts in the New Testament, and never once is gender mentioned when Paul talks or anyone talks about the giving of the gifts. The Spirit decides who he's going to give it to, and gender's got nothing to do with it. Okay, just thought I'd say that. Okay, so here we go. So there's different kinds of gifts, but the same Spirit distributes them to one. Listen to this now. There is, through the Spirit, a message of wisdom. That's just where you get a supernatural insight into something. To another, there's a message of knowledge. That's just where you get a supernaturally given piece of knowledge. You know something that you didn't learn by ordinary means. Uh, To another, by the same Spirit, is given the gift of faith. That's where you just have the supernaturally infused confidence that something's going to happen. To another, there is given the gift of healing. You pray for people, and they get healed. To another, there's uh, given miraculous powers. Miracles happen, like this lady who all of a sudden can play the piano. Uh, to another, is given the gift of prophecy. That's his ability to speak uh, about what God is doing or, or, or what he's doing now or what he's going to do in the future. You have an insight into that. You speak it under the, with the authority of God. To another, there's the distingu- distingu- uh, distinguishing of spirits. And that was like the, of the gift of tongues not coming through. Okay. <laughs> to another, is the distinguishing of spirits. That's just the supernaturally given ability to see what's going on in the spiritual realm. All right? To another, there's different kinds of tongues. That's the ability to speak in a language that you've never learned. It could be a human language or an angelic language. It's just, it's a, you start praying and there it comes through. To another, there's the, the interpretation of tongues. And that's where someone is speaking in tongues and you know what they're saying. Even though you have never learned a language, God downloads the, the translation into your brain. These are supernatural things. These are here for the purpose of ministry. They were given to the, uh, to the early church and we believe that they're, they're, they're to be used today. They're for the church today. Now, a lot of Christians don't believe that. A lot of Christians think that, that, that these gifts were only intended for the early church, not for today. Uh, and we, I, I simply see no reason in the world to believe that. Uh, they didn't stop with the apostles. These folks who deny this are called the dispensationalists because they thought the gifts of the Spirit are for a different dispensation, not for today. Uh, but There's just no reason to think that is true. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that indicates that uh, these gifts were supposed to disappear. And as a matter of fact, they didn't disappear. Uh, you find them in the 2nd century, in the 3rd century, and a little bit in the 4th century. And then they slowly disappear. But they were alive and well for, for, for more than uh, two centuries after the birth of the church. And we see them popping up through our church history. And they're alive and well today. Millions of people exercise these gifts. Um, it's very hard to tell somebody who's been healed that the gift of healing isn't available today. Sorry. It's hard to tell you know, me that, that the gift of tongues doesn't, uh, isn't in operation today because I, I did it between services. <laughs> you know, it's like, uh, what are you talking about? It's, uh, they're for today. In fact, the Bible itself indicates that, we, that these gifts were supposed to be in operation until the Lord returns. So Paul says in, in 1 Corinthians 1, he says, uh, Don't come behind, don't lack any spiritual gift. Uh, As you're waiting for the Lord to be revealed, as you eagerly eagerly wait for the Lord to be revealed. He's talking about the second coming. And and as you're waiting for the second coming, don't lack any of the gifts. Okay, so that assumes that the gifts are to be in operation until the Lord comes back. And not only are we supposed to be open to them. Sometimes people have this idea of uh, don't seek, but don't don't forbid. Uh, If it happens, it happens. But Paul says that we're supposed to seek them. And for example, in 1 Corinthians 14, he says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. Eagerly desire, the word there is zeleo, and we get the word zealous from it. Be zealous for the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. And so we encourage people to be zealous for the spiritual gifts, the supernatural gifts. Seek them, want them, use them, especially the gift of prophecy, which in the right context... Uh, is the the ability to speak forth the word of God, to say what God is up to or what God's going to be doing. Paul saw that as the the gift that benefited the church the most. But to all of them, we're supposed to be open in seeking them. And so we encourage folks to to earnestly seek them. Uh, Don't just say, well, if it happens, it happens. No, this is something. See, we don't seek them to be cool or like they're all interesting speaking in tongues. Or we don't seek them to be spiritually superior. Some folks have the idea that if you speak in tongues, you're somehow more arrived than other people. Do you speak in tongues? Oh, no, no, it's not, it's none of that. We want to have the gifts because God wants to give us the gifts. We want everything God's got for us. Why wouldn't we? And, and we want the gifts because they're there for the purpose of ministering in the church and to others outside the church. And, and they're ways of expressing God's love and the reality of God. That's why uh, Paul says, follow the way of love and eagerly desire the gifts. As you're living out love, and we're always supposed to be living in love, well, one of the ways we can express love is through the gifts of the Spirit. And so we want to be saying, Lord, we seek your gifts. We want your gifts. Whatever you want to give us, Holy Spirit, distribute your gifts. Fall on us. So we can see the supernatural dimension of the the kingdom being restored in our lives here once again. Now, uh, let me say one more thing about this, and that is this. It's always important to remember that in the early church, they met in each other's houses, not in special buildings. And the average church would would have been not more than 20 or 30 people because you couldn't get more than that in these houses. So whenever anyone in the New Testament is talking about the church, you've got to remember they're talking about a small group, 20 to 30 people. They never envisioned something like this. The gifts of the Spirit work very well in those small group kind of contexts. That's what Paul's envisioning here, where people know one another. You're doing life together. You're doing ministry together. You have relationships, and the gifts of the Spirit work very well in those sorts of contexts. When you get a large group of people, most of whom don't know most of the other people, uh, they don't work very well. As a former Pentecostal pastor, my first exposure to Christianity at the age of 17 was was in a Pentecostal church. I was a Pentecostal pastor for a while, and I'm telling you, they, they don't work very well in larger contexts like this. They work very well in smaller groups, so we encourage our small groups to be, uh, to be uh, exercising the gifts in appropriate ways. We have this gathering of the embers meeting twice a month, and we encourage you to go to that. Where it, we, we're, we're specifically put it together for people to begin to be exposed to this and explore this and to grow in this, because we're aware that a lot of folks have no experience in this. Uh, but the, the gifts are intended. In a large group meeting like this, our idea is that we come together to worship and to hear the word, not to have the gifts ex- exercised. Uh, there's a time and place for everything. And this is their context for that. If anyone thinks they have a word for the whole church, then submit it to the leadership, so the leadership can assess whether we think it's of God or not. It's got to be assessed before it goes to press. Uh, The only exception to that would be uh, the the prayer teams uh, that we have uh, around the auditorium during the service. I was happy to see that a lot of folks are taking advantage of that. Um, Being prayed for during the worship service. Uh, there, you might sometimes find the gifts, one or more of the gifts being used, because that's interpersonal ministry, and that's the other area where these gifts work very well. In our day-to-day ministry, or as we pray for one another, on our individual ministries, uh, the gifts can be powerful, just powerful. So we encourage people to be seeking God to use them in these supernatural ways as they go about their day-to-day life, because our day-to-day life is our ministry, amen? We're missionaries here, folks, and so we've got to see every day that we live as a ministry opportunity. So, for example, uh, a number of years ago at Bethel College, when I was a professor there, I had a gal come into my office, and she was all hot and bothered because she wanted to argue with me about predestination. She didn't like what I taught in the class that morning. So she's arguing with predestination. Now, the minute she comes in, in the room, uh, I uh, get a sense, I think it was a word of knowledge, that and all that I had to go on was something about rape, and two days ago, rape two days ago. I was, just, I was aware that that was in my head. I didn't know what to do with it, and, and I encourage people to always stay humble as they're exercising the gifts. Don't go, thus says the Lord. Just, can I, stay humble. Uh, and, and, and you can say attentively and see where it goes. And so I was waiting on this to say, Lord, what do you want me to do with this? I don't know if this applies to her or what. But as, so she's arguing with me. She, she thinks everything's predestined. So I said, okay, so you're telling me, for example, let's, let's say you were raped two days ago. You think that was predestined by God? And the minute I said that, She was like stunned, and she backed up and leaned against the door of my office and broke down, because it turns out that on a date two days previous, she was raped, and she was so full of shame that she didn't tell anybody, and by saying this, it opened up the door for now some healing and some justice to come into this tragic, tragic situation. See, the gifts can be so powerful when 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 we're open to them and seeking them in our day-to-day life. Um, I'm convinced, I, I'm convinced that God is talking as much today as He's ever talked. I, the Holy Spirit is moving as much as He's ever moved, and He wants to distribute His gifts as much as He's ever wanted to dis- just distribute His gifts. The problem is that most of us aren't open to this. We, we don't live our life, day to day, moment by moment, uh, talking to God and, and integrating God into our consciousness. We're, we're, our brains are just full of our own agendas, and so we block God out. And so God can be talking, but we're not tuned in, and we're in the wrong station. You know, last week, just last week, I went into a convenience store and I was getting my little energy drink. And I went to the end of the counter and there's a guy that had been there since I first walked in. And uh, he was buying some stuff, but he didn't have enough money for it. He was trying to, he, he thought he had enough, but he turns out he didn't. And he really needed what he was buying. As I saw what was going on, I all of a sudden identified in myself. A feeling that I had had since I first walked into that convenience store. And it was that I was supposed to buy it. Whatever this guy was, was, was buying, I was supposed to pay for it. And I, I, I had that the second I walked into that uh, convenience store. But I put it aside, dismissed it, didn't pay attention to it. I'm going to get my energy drink. You see? Um, and it was only when I, something jarred this that I could identify, Oh, that's right. I'm supposed to buy this guy his, his stuff. And so I did. But it made me think, how many times has the Lord spoken to me, but I just dismiss it? You know, I got my energy drink agenda going on. Uh, you know, Paul says in 2 Timothy 2 that a good soldier isn't preoccupied with civilian affairs. A good soldier doesn't get preoccupied with civilian affairs, but is always seeking to please his enlisting officer. We're soldiers here, folks. We're in, we're in a war zone, and, and uh, we've got battles to fight and ministries to do. Uh, but we can get so occupied with civilian affairs that we forget that. And our energy drink becomes more important than hearing God. And so God's saying, hey, there's a person I want you to show some love to. But if we're not listening, we're too preoccupied with, with civilian affairs. We're not seeing the walkie-talkie. We're not good soldiers. And so I want to just say, keep your walkie-talkie on. Earnestly seek uh, the, 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 the gifts. As you earnestly seek first the kingdom, which means keep that walkie-talkie on. Moment by moment, be asking God, how would you use me? How might you use me? And when you get an impression or a sense, I encourage you to act on it. Act on it. Because now you're opening an opportunity for God to begin to work in some mighty and powerful ways. Amen. You know what's weird? The day after I did this, I'm in line over at Bethel and I'm buying my dinner and a lady comes up who I've never met before and she says, I think God told me I'm supposed to buy your dinner. (laughs) And that has never happened to me before. The day after that, see, God pays you back. (laughs) You're never going to find yourself out. Cast your bed upon the water it comes back to you. Okay, the second thing that I'm just going to state quickly is that we believe in the infilling of the Holy Spirit. In the church tradition, they began to believe, and probably a lot of you came from this background that, that when you, when you uh, believe in, in, in Jesus, you're already filled with the Spirit. Uh, they're synonymous. Uh, and the, whole, the, the Pentecostals saw that that wasn't, that wasn't accurate. Um, in the New Testament, there's a difference between believing and being filled. Uh, you know, the, the apostles believed in Jesus... All right, so they had the Holy Spirit in a sense because you can't believe in Jesus without the Holy Spirit. But Jesus says, wait, don't do anything until you receive the power. See, there's something else to come. and That was the power. And you find this throughout the book of Acts. People believe, but they still need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, one, one other example from the book of Acts is Acts chapter 6 where uh, the apostles are getting too busy doing stuff. So they say, go out and find seven people who are filled with the Spirit and full of wisdom. Now, They're asking them to find... Seven who are distinct because they're filled with the Holy Spirit, which means not everyone's filled with the Holy Spirit. All right, so there's a difference here. Paul in Ephesians 5 says, don't be drunk with wine any longer. Now, you know, that leads to debauchery. And I think it'd be appropriate hermeneutics to apply that as well to whiskey and scotch and brandy and everything else. I've actually had people say, well, I don't drink wine. I just like whiskey. Uh, you know, anything that gets you... It's going to make you lose control. It ain't good. All right, so at least the debauchery, but instead be filled with the spirit. Now look, he's talking to Christians here. So they already have the spirit. They already believe in Jesus, but he's telling them to be filled. So obviously there's a difference here. In fact, in Ephesians 1, he says to these uh, Christians, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit when you believed. So they're sealed with the Holy Spirit, but some aren't filled with the Holy Spirit. It wouldn't make any sense to encourage them to be filled if they were already filled. You see what I'm saying? And so there's a difference here. Uh, and we believe that we're always to be seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul here speaks in the present tense, which means that, that being filled is an ongoing thing. You could almost translate this passage. Be always being filled. Oh, it's always in the present tense. Be, be being filled with the Holy Spirit. Some folks act or speak as though being filled with the Holy Spirit is a one-time thing. Like Once you're filled, you're always filled. Like You're going to be on cloud nine the rest of your life. And it doesn't operate like that. The parallel in in this passage is this. I mean, when you get drunk, when you used to get drunk, uh, you don't stay drunk. You don't stay drunk. You've got to drink some more if you're going to stay drunk, you see. You eventually sober up. And it's that way with the infilling of the Spirit. Uh, As many many of us know from experience, just because you're filled one moment doesn't mean you're going to be filled next week. Uh, It's something we have to always be, you know, keep on drinking the Spirit. Stop keep on drinking the the wine. Keep on drinking the Spirit. And be filled with the Spirit. And the, the reason is, and it comes out of this passage, the reason is this. When you're, when you're on, you know, getting high on alcohol or, or, or marijuana or whatever, you lose some of your control. And the higher you get, the more control you lose. And that can lead you into debauchery. That's why all the warnings in the Bible are about the behavior that can come from being intoxicated. Uh, you'll do things you otherwise wouldn't do. But when you're filled with the Spirit, well, you also lose some self-control, but in a good way. Because now you'll do things you otherwise couldn't do. Paul is saying, you want to lose your control that way. Always be seeking to lose control. Always be be, be drinking of the Spirit. Always come under the influence of the Spirit. Don't come under the influence of of alcohol that's going to lead you into debauchery. Come under the influence of the Spirit that's going to lead you to do some godly stuff that you otherwise would never be capable of doing. Stuff like the gifts of the Spirit that we're just talking about. Come under the influence of the Spirit. That's what the, The infilling is all about this. Now, one other thing is this. Some people teach, the early Pentecostals teach that if you're filled with the Spirit, you always speak in tongues. That's always the initial evidence. And uh, uh, we we, we just don't see that in the Bible here at Woodland Church. Nowhere does the Bible teach that. Uh, I I don't think the Bible supports that. That there's one, when when they say go out and find seven people who are full of the Spirit, they don't say go out and find seven people who speak in tongues. They're not synonymous. Tongues is a great gift, I'm all for it, yay. But, But it's not the special sign of anything. In fact, being filled with the Spirit, there's no one particular thing that you can p- point to that, uh, a, a, that, that is the evidence. And when, when, when people, folks believe that, it causes funkiness. As a former Pentecostal pastor, I can tell you it causes funkiness because you've got some who speak in tongues and some who don't. And the ones who speak in tongues, are, I think they're all automatically filled. And these folks aren't. But it's weird because you look at it, and sometimes the people who don't speak in tongues are more spiritually mature than the people who do. But the people who do think that they've arrived, while well, the people who don't think they haven't arrived, and it's just funky. And then you got people trying to speak in tongues. Yeah, it's just weirdness. There's no one, look at, well, when you, if you're looking for someone who's intoxicated, you don't look for any one particular piece of evidence. I wouldn't say go out and find someone who staggers, because some drunk people don't stagger. Or find someone who, who, who slurs their words, because some of us slur our words even when we're sober. <laughs> you know, no, no, you can tell if a person's, there's a lot of things that, there's a package there that you look for. So, also, when a person is under the influence of the Holy Spirit, they're under the influence. They, they, to be under the influence of the Holy Spirit just means you're intoxicated, you're intoxicated with God. Uh, you, you reek with Jesus stuff. <laughs> it's on your breath. It's on your actions. It's in your, it's in your heart. You, 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 know, you don't just love God. You're intoxicated with love for God. That's what it is to be filled with the Spirit. And you're intoxicated with love for people. And you're intoxicated with a love for the kingdom. You know, you're under the influence. You're walking in the Spirit. You, you, you can smell it. You can see it. There's supernatural stuff sometimes there. There's fruit of the Spirit stuff that, that is there. There's a lot of ways you can identify a person who's just full of God. Man, that person's full of God not one particular thing you can look at it's the whole package and so we just say seek to be filled with the spirit get intoxicated with Jesus Christ be filled over and over e- every day pursue this uh, and it's, not, it's, not, it's not synonymous with, with, with believing I'm glad you believe and trust in God that's wonderful but you want all that God has for you and God wants to get you drunk <laughs> and God wants to keep you drunk I guarantee you that's going to be quoted out of context someplace. I... so <laughs> Uh, Drunk in the spirit. That's what they said on the day of Pentecost. These people are drunk. Peter uses the best argument anyone's ever come up with. Hey, it's not even noon yet. How can we be drunk? (laughs) You know we don't start drinking until one. Okay. Uh, Well, what do we got by way of questions? Questions. The gift of prophecy sounds a lot like new age psychics and mediums. How do we tell the difference between the Holy Spirit and Miss Cleo? I don't know who Miss Cleo is, but I gather she's a new age psychic or something. Okay. Good word. Now look at it. There is nothing that, uh, that, that God does that the devil doesn't imitate. Find anything that God does and you find an imitation. Guaranteed. Uh, you got a true savior, you're going to have false saviors. Got a true word of God, you're going to have false words of God. You Got true gifts of the spirit, you're going to have false gifts of the spirit. Um, and... Um, uh, so don't be surprised by that. Some people throw the baby out with the bathwater and they, they, they get so fearful you know, that, oh, I don't want to speak in tongues or I don't want to prophesy because you know, that, that I may be under the influence of the new age stuff or, or something like that. And that's just playing into the devil's strategy. That's what he wants you to do. No, no, look at the criteria is always this. Um, is it glorifying Jesus Christ? Is it furthering the kingdom of Jesus Christ? Uh, and uh, if a person is, is, has a gift of seeing something prophetically or, or word of knowledge or whatever, uh, and they're not furthering the kingdom, they're not exercising in a way that is glorifying Jesus Christ, then I would stay away from it. Uh, but if a person is doing this, and, and it's glorifying Jesus Christ, and it's furthering the kingdom, well, then that's the gift of prophecy. You see, so always look at, at, at who's being glorified in a in, in thing, in, in the process. And that's the criteria. And the other thing is this. Jesus said that if you ask the father for, you being a a sinful parent, if your child asks you for bread, you're not going to give him a scorpion or a rock, right? So also, Jesus said, if you ask the the father for the spirit, he's not going to give you something else. So if your heart is to just be all you can be for God and to be used by God, don't worry about some foreign spirit getting in there. If your heart is, is Godward, then the gift of tongues that you get is the real gift of tongues. And the gift of, of prophecy is the real gift of prophecy. It's your heart motivation that defines it. And don't let there be any fear about anything else getting in there. No, God's not going to let that happen. Okay, let's do one more even though we're out of time. Because I'm just being a bad boy today. How do I get filled with the Holy Spirit? Very good. Well, look at it, look at it, look at it. It's very good. Here's my encouragement. Um, uh, suppose, uh, this was a glass thing a glass that you could see into you can't but it's full of water Um, but suppose there's a bunch of rocks in there there's a sense in which you you know you're you're filled with the spirit but the the cup really isn't filled with the spirit because it's also full of rocks so what you really need is not more of the spirit so much as you need less of you Uh, we got rocks that take up the space in our life if you want to be filled with the spirit you just simply have to stop being filled with everything else and so it's about surrender it's about surrender and uh, 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 it's one uh, uh, emptying yourself and so uh, I encourage you to take the rocks out. Just empty the rocks and ask God for the water. Saying, I want to be filled with you and nothing but you. It's about taking out the rock of your self-ambition, taking out the rock of, of your, your relying on your resources, taking out the rock of your insecurities, taking out the rock of your false identity, taking out the rock of that wrong relationship, taking out the rock of, of, of going your own way and being the Lord of your own life. No, no, it's about surrendering to him and saying, God, he, he is pursuing you. See, he, he's, he's pressing in on you. I, I, his passionate, eternal, perfect love that could not be improved upon ever, ever, ever is pressing in and wants, wants to get in and have every square inch of you. It's only the rocks in our life that keep that from happening. So we don't have to tug on God to get him to come in. Please come, give it to me. No, he's already given it to us, but we're pushing it out with our rocks. And so take out the rocks, and boom, he fills the vacuum. The more rocks you take out, the more he fills that vacuum, and that's what it is to be filled with the Spirit And then you start finding yourself doing stuff you otherwise wouldn't do and couldn't do uh, because you're no longer walking just in your own resources. You're relying on the resources of the Holy Spirit, drinking deeply from the well of God's intoxication, (laughs) losing your control. Yes, lose control. Oh, no, let go. Oh, no, let go. Let go. Let it go. All right. Can the devil imitate the gifts of the Spirit? Oh. Can the devil imitate the gifts of the Spirit? Well, uh, yeah, I think so. Uh, I, in fact, I don't think there's anything that is true that can't be uh, forged. And that, that, that's what the devil does. He just, he, he's an a imitator. For, for he does that to confuse people or whatever. So if you've got a true Bible, you're going to have a false Bible. If you've got a true Messiah, you'll have false messiahs. If you have true gifts, I'm sure you're going to have false gifts. I've heard, I haven't seen it myself, but I, I've uh, heard folks have claimed that they've heard people speak in tongues and they're actually cursing God. In fact, you find uh, something like speaking in tongues, and even in, in uh, certain other religions, uh, tribal religions and, and whatnot. So I suspect, I have no reason to think that the devil can't imitate the gifts. But, but here's the thing. Jesus said uh, that if uh, a father, if the child asks for bread, the father's not going to give him a snake, a scorpion. Uh, so also, if you ask the, your heavenly father for the Holy Spirit, he's not going to give you something bad. And so uh, we can trust. If your heart is to uh, is for God and your heart's for the kingdom, uh, you can't be cursed with false gifts. The devil can't get in there. God, God's not going to let that happen. You now, if your heart is evil, uh, you know, and you're seeking to do evil, well, then you're under the influence of the enemy, and he can maybe give you some supernatural stuff. You hear about supernatural stuff all the time. In fact, Paul talks about the devil uh, doing doing false signs and wonders. I just thought of that. I think it's in Second Thess- Thessalonians. The Antichrist doing false signs and wonders. And you see that in the book of Revelation. So yeah, there can be false gifts of the Spirit. I'm sure of it. Uh, but you don't have to worry about that if your heart is to seek God and to, to do his will. All right, good, good. Good question. What else we got? When and why did some start to believe that speaking in tongues was required to be saved? Oh, yeah. Um, actually, the first church I was, was saved didn't believe that. Uh, they they argued that speaking Here's the thing, I forgot to mention this, I was going to say it in the message. The early Pentecostals believed that, when you, that, that if you're filled with the Spirit, you'll always speak in tongues. That that was the initial sign. Um, and a lot of charismatics still believe that to this day. Uh, we at Woodland Hills Church don't believe that. Uh, we don't see that being taught in the Bible. Um, and you know, it's, we, There's, not, there's just no reason to think that, that there's any one particular sign uh, that a person uh, is filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, when, when, you, when you have that view, what you end up with is like a two-class Christianity. The tongue talkers and the non-tongue talkers. And, uh, and, and, and it puts pressure on people to, to, to speak in tongues. Um, and uh, so, as a Pentecostal pastor, you used to always bug, bug me because you have the people who speak in tongues are supposed to be filled with the Spirit. And the people who don't speak in tongues are apparently are not. But often the ones who do speak in tongues are less spiritually mature than the ones who don't. And it used to bug me that every, everything is leveraged on speaking in tongues. There's just no biblical reason to think that. Um, a, a person who's filled with the Spirit can be, they, they, they're just intoxicated with God's stuff if a person's intoxicated with God's stuff they're filled and you don't have to look for one particular you know, piece of evidence uh, the church I was uh, initially saved in went beyond that and they taught that unless you speak in tongues you don't have the Holy Spirit at all so you're not saved and man you talk about pressure uh, uh, it, it, oh, weird. trying to get people to speak in tongues so they could be saved it was, it was, oh, it was excruciating um, And that that belief rose up around 1914 in a little group among the Pentecostals who then went off in other kind of heretical ways and denied the Trinity and they called Jesus only Pentecostals. I wrote a book about it. It's called When is Pentecostalism out there? Because that was the form of Christianity I was first uh, introduced to. And so that, that goes back to 1914. It's the only group that's ever believed that. Um, but the Pentecostals uh, in general have believed that, that uh, speaking in tongues is the initial evidence that's required. If you haven't spoken in tongues, then they don't think you have the Holy Spirit. Uh, and that, we just think that that's a, a misguided belief. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 12, when Paul talks about the gifts of the Spirit, he speaks about speaking in tongues as in, in a way that makes it clear that not everyone speaks in tongues. He says, are all teachers, are all prophets, are all apostles? Uh, do all have the gift of administration? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret tongues? And the answer to all those questions is no. Not everyone has that. But we all have different ones. So tongues is a great gift. I'm a fan of it. Yay! But uh, uh, I, I don't think you should leverage. It doesn't mean anything in terms of whether you're filled or not. It's not, it's not a part of some kind of unique <laughs> gift. Okay, I got time for one more. Paul said that we should uh, seek after the gift of prophecy. Should we be aiming for a specific gift, or do we even get a say in it? Very good. That's a very interesting question. It's actually one I've never thought. This is what I love about the Q and A time is because. I've never thought about that question before. Uh, Because on the one hand, Paul says, uh, the Spirit just distributes to whoever he wants. So that makes it seem like we don't have a say in it. But on the other hand, he says, earnestly desire the spiritual gifts, especially the gift of prophecy. So apparently, you can, uh, you can. Yeah, you do have a say in it. Or at least you you have a say in asking for it. Uh, And the reason is, prophecy is about uh, getting a supernatural insight into what is going on, what God is doing, or what God's planning to do. And Paul is in favor of that because when you come together in a normal church meeting, which would be 20 to 30 people, and a person has a gift of prophecy, that can be very, very helpful uh, to the the body as a whole. Uh, And he preferred that over speaking in tongues. And he says if you do that in a group, then it should be interpreted. Otherwise, no one's going to get blessed by it. He's always interested in love, which is about what's good for the whole, what's good for the community. Uh, So he says uh, seek after the gift of prophecy to be used in those contexts. So I think it is okay to pursue that. Uh, but the, but the, the more general disposition should be this, you know, God, while I want to be used with the gift of prophecy, I'm open to anything, I'm open to anything, because our heart should be to say, Lord, I want to serve you in any way and in every way that I possibly can. And so any gift that you can pour out on me and use through me, I'm open to that. Uh, and so pour it out, Lord, pour it out, Lord, I'm zealous for it, Lord, I'm zealous for it, Lord, because I'm zealous for you. Always make sure that you're seeking the giver of the gifts more than you're seeking any of the gifts. If we have it. Why, so, why do you think so many churches are scared of the spiritual gifts or at least afraid of the topic? Good question. a very good question. Um, well, one of the reasons is because there's been so much craziness associated with it. And this goes back to uh, Zuzu Street and before. Uh, You know, they had some stuff that was not, you know, apostles let everything be done decently and in order, and they had some stuff that was not decent and in order. They, they, you know, they they had some of this craziness, madness. Um, And as one who comes from a Pentecostal background, or I wasn't raised that way, but that's the first church I converted into, uh, you know, Shelly, we saw some craziness. Wouldn't you say we saw some craziness? Dave, we saw some craziness. Crazy craziness. So a, a lot of preachers understandably say, hey, I don't want that. I don't want that. That can't be of God. And then they end up throwing the baby out with the bathwater. And I'm sympathetic to that sentiment. I just don't think you should throw the baby out with the bathwater. When when you have the gifts being practiced in large groups, you you get more funkiness. That's why if if they're practiced in small groups, the good that can be done is magnificent, and the harm that can be done is minimal. But when you come together as a large group, and most people don't know most people, it's just an event. The harm that can be done is, is magnificent, and the good that can be done is minimal. Uh, and so that, that, that's one of the reasons that uh, I think a lot of folks are, are afraid of it. Um, another reason is that there is, and I, I, this isn't true of everybody, and I'm not trying to whitewash it, but there is a kind of religious pride that folks can get where it's like, if, if, if I haven't heard it before, then it can't be true. Um, that, you know, we've always done it this way, and so we know this is God's way of doing it. Here's something that we haven't done, and to admit that would mean that we've been missing out on something. And if you get life from being right, a lot of religious folks do, uh, then then it's hard to admit that you're wrong. And, uh, you know, in fact, St. Augustine um, was the first to say this, so far as I know, in church history, uh, where in the late, late uh, 4th century, um, some folks were saying that the church was backslidden because we don't see the gifts available anymore, and he came up with a theory that, no, that's not true, Uh, the gifts were for a different age, different church age. And um, uh, and so he theologized around it, uh, so he wouldn't have to admit that the church was, in fact, to a large degree, backslidden at the time. Interestingly enough, shortly after he said that, there was an outbreaking of miracles in a town uh, that he was over as a bishop, and he ended up changing his mind. I guess the gifts are still around today. Uh, They don't have as much as we'd like them to. Okay, very good question. Let's take one more. I've heard some people speak in tongues, but it sounds bizarre to me. How do we know they're not thinking it when they speak in tongues? Very good. Um, Well... Few things. One is uh, there. There are some languages out there that are spoken by people that, if you heard them, they would sound bizarre to you. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen the movie *The Gods Must Be Crazy*. Uh, And this is one African tribe, and the way they talked was just bizarre. They they, like like clicks, a lot of clicks. Really bizarre. Uh, So you know, some languages can sound, sound bizarre if you've never heard them before, and you have to cut slack because Paul says that. He implies that you can speak in tongues of men or of angels even. So it could be an angelic language. And who knows what that sounds like. So you've got to cut a lot of slack here. Having said that, I, I would also add this. That I've heard some folks speak in tongues where it... it, it well, it's like I was at a meeting several months ago. And uh, it was a real charismatic meeting. And it was a lot of blessing stuff going on. But this lady next to me was, I guess, speaking in tongues... But it sounded like she was stuttering in tongues because she's kind of going Shaba 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 Shabe, Shabae Shabe Shaba Shaba Shabe. It's like mix it up a little bit or something. Do you know it was very irritating after a while. Shaba 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 and it's like, ah, oh. <laughs> put in a vowel add a consonant. Uh, you know so and and, and 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 I have heard, you know, some some strange stuff. You know, if, 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 here's my theory on it. This isn't doctrine. This is my opinion. Uh, but in some cases, you've got to cut a lot of slack, for sure. But in some cases, see, if you come from an environment that teaches you that if you don't speak in tongues, then you, then you don't have the Holy Spirit. Like the church that Dave and I, Shelly came from, they said if you haven't spoken in tongues, you're not even saved yet. Well, there's incredible pressure on you to speak in tongues. You haven't arrived yet. If, if there's kind of a two-class system. The tongue talkers and the non-tongue talkers and, and uh, the tongue talkers are supposed to be you know, more holy because they got the gift. Why didn't you? And it's bizarre because I, I would, as a Pentecostal pastor, a lot of times the people who spoke in tongues were a lot more immature than the ones who didn't, but we had to say that they weren't filled and the other ones were. It was just weird. But see, there's psychological pressure on you to speak in tongues and those things, and I think sometimes folks, you know, sincere, all, with all sincerity, they, they just start trying to imitate something they've heard. And I don't think they're just trying to fake it, but I think they're trying to convince themselves. If you think salvation depends on it, or at least acceptance in this crowd as a first-class Christian depends on it, well, we're capable of convincing ourselves of a lot of stuff. And so I think sometimes folks do fake it, uh, but uh, they mean well. They mean well. It's a sign of acceptance into a community. And, and, uh, and that's why you, I think sometimes you can hear bizarre stuff. Uh, is not in fact the language because people are just trying hard to fit in and trying to make something happen anyways final word is be open to the spirit seek the gifts you know we have uh, burning embers here we realize that most of our small groups don't have much of this going on and a lot of folks have never been in a context where this has happened and so we started this thing burning embers that's me that meets uh twice a month and it's there to, to encourage people to just start to explore this. And I encourage you to take advantage of it. It means after this service, the next one is going to be May 19th. And uh, we just wait on God. And, and, and as God moves, we, we start, it's a safe environment to start to really seek, earnestly seek uh, the gifts and to be used in that way. And then throughout your life, be open to it. Uh, as you're walking into convenience stores, who knows what God might want to do in that convenience store uh, to further his kingdom. Ah, uh, close in prayer, and I'd like to invite the prayer teams to come forward here, and if you have any need whatsoever, I encourage you to come forward here and let these anointed people pray for you. Everything you share is in confidence and won't go anywhere, uh, and don't carry that alone. No, the, the church wants to minister to you, so come forward. And don't forget the raffle out there. Go bid on some of that stuff to support that missions trip. Abba, Father, we thank you just for allowing us to be together here and study your word and for sending forth your spirit. And we ask, God, that you, Holy Spirit, just be teaching us how to get the rocks out, how to empty ourselves, how to be full of you, how to walk on your power and your wisdom and your resources using your gifts to further your kingdom to the glory of Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. And all of God's people said, amen. amen. God bless you guys. Go all be filled with the spirit.